Uh, you know, one of the uh, encouraging things for me in the last uh, year or so, year and a half, two years, is that the amount of weddings I've done, and even through COVID, and I think in and around the storefront community, I think there are six or seven couples who are in their first year of marriage or in the first year and a half of marriage. And of those couples, there, there were four babies expected uh, in the next four or five months. Uh, so that call is real. Necessary. So, um, as Chantal said, uh, we're sort of moving towards October 17th. That's going to be the official launch for us. Until that time, we're going to continue to look through uh, the series on membership, and we're going to be thinking through particular passages that pertain to the to the affir uh, affirmations and vows and promises that come being a member of the church. Today we're going to, oh, and after that, uh, from October 17th on, we're going to start a new series, and we're going to be going through the book of Jonah, and the book of Jonah is actually one of the oldest books in the Bible, but it's incredibly relevant for us today. Uh, it's a book of four chapters. We're going to probably spend six or seven weeks going through that. And that's going to lead us all the way up to Advent and Christmas. We're in that season. So uh, it's hard to imagine, but here we are. So that's sort of the trajectory for the next few months. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to going through that. But we're going to continue today with the fourth of, the, of our five facts. And the promise that uh, we're asking and considering today is kind of the backdrop to the passage I'm about to read is whether or not we promise to support the worship and the work of the church. Think about, about that, right? Do we promise to support the work and the work, the worship and the work of the church? And I think immediately what comes to mind, right, is will we be present? Will we participate? And if that is, if that is all we have to say here today, I encourage people to volunteer and all of that. It's going to be a short sermon. It's not going to be uh, very uplifting. We're going to walk right through here. But I think the, the, the vow, the promise, actually calls us something much more. Uh, at the heart of that vow is um, really at the heart of the Christian life. And that is, you have to ask the question, what is the work of the church? What is the work of the church? Well, the work of the church is love. To love people. To uh, remember the love that uh, God has poured into our hearts, scripture said, and extend that love to other people. In many ways, if you're a Christian, you are formally or informally informally asking that question all of the time. Do I live to support the worship and work of the church? Because it is the place, it's the dwelling place of God. It's the place where love, love lives. So every Christian should be asking that question of themselves all the time, all of their lives, and answering it in the affirmative. And so I'm going to, uh, we're going to look at that passage by looking, or yeah, we're going to answer that question by looking at the, pas the passage from 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, I'll go ahead and read it. And let me just encourage you also, not only do we have it on the screen, but we have it in such a way that you can hold, that you can look at the liturgy on your phones. And so it's probably just a good practice for us uh, to be looking at our phones. That's never been said before. <laughs> uh, to be looking at the passage as we listen to the teaching. So this is uh, the 13th chapter. I'm going to read eight verses. This is what Paul has to say. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And that is God's word. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is pastoring a uh, group of leaders in a church. First Corinthian, the, the Corinthian church is a relatively new church. They're a rapidly growing church. They're a diverse, affluent church. But they were known because they had uh, a plethora of spiritual gifts. And so what they were doing is they were going and they were exercising these gifts. They were uh, praying and, and ministering to people teaching from the scriptures and pointing people to Christ. They were, you can imagine, uh, an, enacting new, new and innovative ministries. They're very busy doing uh, the work of ministry, and yet Paul is calling them out because, in his estimation, they've lost sight of God. They've lost sight of God, and what happens when Christian leaders lose sight of God, the good works that they, they, they continue to do these good works, but they lose the real motivation for so they do good things for all the wrong reasons. And inevitably, what happens is that we lose steam. And when Christian leaders lose steam, what that means is that they run out of love. And the call for Christian leaders, the call for Christians, is to take all of their gifts, all of their talents, all their skills, and have them governed by the love. He's saying to the church, you've lost sight of your first love, you've lost sight. Of, of, of God. And so this church is not, in his estimation, it's not so much known for their gifts. What are they known for? They're known for uh, being prideful. They're known for being impatient, bitter, competitive, envious of each other. So everything, in a sense, has changed in the Paul's point of view. Why? Because they've lost their first love, they've lost sight of God. And to lose sight of God means that they've lost sight of God as their worship. They've lost sight of God as their worship. And I just want to look at those two, uh, two ideas today. That the work of the church begins with worship. Work, work of the church, it begins with worship. And the worship of the church begins with work. So first, the worship of the church, worship of the work of the church begins with worship. It begins with the worship of God. And discover that there in the passage. What does it mean to worship? Worship comes from an old English word, uh, and it be, the word is um, I'm going to butcher it. The word is weorthskepe. Weorthskepe, and weorthskepe means to to um, ascribe worth, ascribe value. And so Paul in this passage is describing worth, describing value to God, but in a way that doesn't immediately jump off the page. We see it there in verse eight. He says, love never ends. Love never ends. And, you know, the translators, 
they're, they're trying to catch up with Paul and understand exactly all that that phrase, love never ends in compasses. And so they translate it, love never fails, love never falls. But what he's saying is that love never runs out. Love always supports you. Love never fails you. Uh, love never grows tired. Is that your experience with love? It's not mine. And that's not a comment on my marriage. That's really, I mean, if you think about love, you think about it from a romantic sense, a platonic sense, a familial sense, you think about communal love. There are seasons, there are moments where love is so true, it is so good. We love love. And yet, the reality too is that love often in all of those areas of our life feels so elusive. It feels like we don't have enough. It feels like when we need it, we can't find it. It feels like when we're tested, it just simply runs out. And if you look at human history, then you have to you have to say it appears that love does end. There's too much pain, there's too much suffering, there's too much conflict. So how can Paul say love never? Because he's not talking primarily about our love, human love from one another. He's talking about the love of God. But he's not talking about God's love from you and I. That's secondary. That's down the line. He's talking about. Can you guys hear me okay? He's talking about the infinite, unchanging love. That's an aspect of God's eternal being. He's talking about the love God shares within himself, the love that God's always had within himself long before you and I came to existence, long before the universe came about, the love that is uh, an aspect of the triune God that's shared uh, within the triune God. And that's why he can say love never ends. See, love never ends because love, like God, never began. And it will always be. When Paul's talking about love, he's talking about something that is, was, forever. That's the kind of love that he's talking about. And the reason I think that he's he's brought to a place of worship is because the letter to the Corinthians is a letter to a family, but it's also a work letter. He's writing to other pastors. He's writing to other colleagues, but he doesn't just give them a principle. And he doesn't just lay down doctrine. What does he do? He provides poetry. It's not long and hard enough. And he's sharing it with them and he's saying, guys, I know I don't have the love that I need to be your friend. I don't have the love uh, I need to pastor you well. I know that I run out of love, but I know that's true of you too. And I see you've run out of love, but guys, remember the love that you have for Jesus. Remember the love that, uh, the love that uh, came from the triune God and in Jesus Christ has never opened up to you. Love that love never ends. Love never ends. So we see this, this workplay written to a group of guys that concludes with such beauty, such universal truth, uh, that people all over the world recognize this passage as something that speaks directly to the human heart. This is a work letter, and yet 50% of the marriages use this passage. 50%, this is so true and so beautiful that couples, when they're entering into the most 
you know, a, a, a profound, intimate relationship. They say, I want that love at the heart of my relationship. And Paul is saying, that love is at the heart of Christian community. That's what we're all about. Is this what God's all about? God's all about love. And unless we embody, unless we worship God first and foremost, we'll lose that cease to be what God has called Christian school, which is the community that extends that love uh, to others. And of course, you know, anytime that you worship God, you're bound to create. And so uh, Frederick Beeman is a hymn writer, and he wrote this trying to capture what Paul's trying to capture. He says this about the love of God. He says, could we, could we with, with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment? No, let me try it. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean drop. Nor could the scroll contain the whole when stretched from sky to sky. So the worship of God, Paul is at the center of his life, it's at the center of his work. He's calling us to make that, that true too. And because it's the center of his life, because it's the center of his love, he loves more. And out of that love, he's wiser, he's more courageous a leader, he's able to love and serve others. So the worship of God is at the center of our life and work. But the work of the church, uh, excuse me, the work of the church is worship. The worship of the church begins with work. And I don't mean volunteers. I mean, Worship begins with the heart work, a heart work that prepares us for worship, that helps us be present in worship, and that helps us know how to participate when we worship. Okay? So the heart work is necessary in order for us to actually work. So what, what, do, we, what do I mean by that? Uh, preparation. You know, part of the reason I think that Christians put so much pressure on churches uh, uh, especially when it comes to their Sunday experiences, because we put so little on ourselves when it comes to our own individual preparation for Sunday. Can I say that again? I think part of the pressure that we, the reason we put pressure on churches, particularly for a Sunday morning experience, is because we put so little pressure on ourselves when it comes to taking the time to individually prepare myself to do business with God. Christian uh, worship is, is active. It's not passive. You know, when we go to a movie, that's an act, or that's a passive experience. Not when we go to a film, sorry. But when we go to a movie, it's a passive experience, right? We come to escape life. We come to be entertained. We come to watch a story and hopefully walk away, maybe feeling uplifted, maybe being inspired, uh, having a good laugh, and then suddenly go back to life. It's just to be refreshed. But it's a passive experience. You don't contemplate your life before you go to a movie. But church is just the opposite. Church is not something where you check out of your life. You come with your life. Come with your life in your hands. You say, here's my life. Let's do business. You know, the Puritans, the Puritans on Saturday night, they would spend time by themselves doing it, a spiritual inventory of their heart, spiritual inventory of their head, their life. What are the, 
What are the things that my family is struggling with right now? What are the things that I'm struggling with? What are those besetting sins that I, my wife or my children or, or my colleagues, my friends are continually frustrated with? And they bring, they bring all those things, they bring this, this, um, this uh, to-do list, so a work list to church with. They interact with God. They do business with God. Uh, they, they come prepared. <clears throat> um, Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness was Obi-Wan Kenobi. Right? Sir Alec Guinness became a Christian later in his life, before, before he was Obi-Wan But he became a Christian later in his life. And he talks about how much he's often just ruminating on his life, thinking about God, bringing that, uh, and bringing all of that to Scripture so much, to Sunday to the Sunday experience so much so that he often found himself running to church, trotting to church, walking fast. He's so excited. Why? Because he he done his preparation. He's done his work. He knew what he needed to say. He knew what he needed to hear. Right? And he trusted God enough to speak into his heart. So, let me ask: How much time do you prepare? For a job interview? How much time do you prepare for date night for a date? How much time do you spend thinking about meeting up with a good friend? Those are all active experiences. Those are good things. Those are really good things. We should spend time. With how much time do we think about? Uh, how much preparation do we put in to come to church? Secondly, uh, we want to think about being present with church. Presence matters. Your physical presence on Sunday mornings is utterly important. It's utterly important to you as an individual, and it's utterly important to the people around you. And that's true whether you're in a small church or a big church. When you're not present in a big church, it's less noticeable, right? It's more noticeable in a small church. But the effect is, is the same on you and those around you who have a greater connection with you. And that is, is that you begin to lose steam. You begin to lose grounding. You begin to lose that sort of central, uh, that central period in your life where uh, you're being primarily shaped by your creator. So your presence in church is super important. And one of, the, one of the old sayings that just slays me every time I hear it, and I don't know if it'll slay you, and this is too much buildup, as my wife would say, um, and that is this, is that Christians are, are very God, Christians are God-centered as long as they know that, that God is man-centered. Christians are God-centered. We love God. We walk around and say, God is at the, he's the center of my life. Formally, that's what I think. But functionally, how we really feel about God, is we, we want to grow God-centered as long as we believe that He's man-centered. Right? What I love about the passage is Paul is saying, God is not contingent on me. I'm contingent on Him. My love runs out. God, though, is the fountainhead. And if I am not spending time in the ways that He has given the church, so that I can grow, tap in, shall we say, experience his love, then I'm at a loss. So there's nothing like being present in your local church on Sunday that says to 
to you as a person in your own personal calendar, God is the center of my life. That's a tangible way you can, you can push back against that reality that we all struggle with. We think we're God-centered, but in actuality, we're only God-centered if we think that God is man Showing up in church, being present in church on Sunday is one way you say, I'm fighting against that narrative. But it's also counterformative counter for our culture. Our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues know, oh, David is at church on Sunday, every Sunday. Well, I have but for, you, for all of us, right? It's a, it's a stake in the ground saying to the world that I live by another narrative. So presence is, is super important, uh, and so is participation. When we come fully engaged, and what I mean by that is we come recognizing that we have been formed, and that we're experiencing a kind of personal and communal reformation or reformation each and every Sunday. And we've been shaped by, uh, as New Yorkers, the city that we love, we are shaped by a certain kind of cynicism, we're shaped by a certain kind of skepticism, but we also, live in a hyper-professional culture. So when we come to church, we're also bringing with it professionalism. And I love the idea of integrating my faith with my work. And that's something that many of you are very familiar with. And when we think of that, we think of you know, professionalism is being reliable, creative, and innovative, and all of these wonderful things. But when I think about professionalism as a danger, Christian faith, but I'm thinking about the need to appear wise, strong, and composed in that When I uh, first came to seminary, there was a pastor in the Midwest who wrote a manifesto with two other pastors. The manifesto was entitled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And what he was pushing back it was that Pastors in that particular time were struggling with their, their, the feeling that they needed to be corporate CEOs, not just not just ministers. And so they were coming and they were trying to be uh, corporate in their, in their work. And he just said, that is not what you're called to be. That's not what you're called to be. You're not, we're not brothers. We're not professionals. And so I took that to heart and, and loved the book. And I want to share a little bit with, with you this excerpt from it, because it's first for me, but I think it's second for you. So this is what the, the author says uh, to pastors. Pastor, the mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the slave of Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence of our Christian ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we believe in our for there is no professional childlikeness, Matthew 18. There's no professional tenderheartedness, Ephesians 4. There's no professional panting after God. Brothers, our first business is to pan after God in prayer. Our business is to weep over sins. Is there professional weeping? Our business is to, is to stare forward to the holiness of Christ and the prize of the upward call of God, to pummel our bodies and subdue them lest we be cast away to deny ourselves and take up the blood splattered cross daily. How do you carry a cross professionally? Brothers, we are not professionals. 
for those who live in a professional culture, we are called uh, to come in and recognize that we bring uh, with, we, we have a natural, many of us have a natural inclination towards uh, always appearing wise, always appearing strong, feeling the need to, to always um, be composed. I have not really grown up or experienced a professional culture, but because I live in a professional culture, I want to be there. And so when we, uh, it's just, I say that just to simply recognize, I don't know what that actually looks like for all of us. Right? It's simply having the force that there are some aspects of the Christian faith that don't comport with the professional faith. God has chosen the foolish things in the world to confound the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong. Do you feel free? Here to be foolish for this. Do you feel free here to be weak for your brothers and sisters? Brothers and sisters, we're not professionals. So that first is a message for you. Second, it's a message for you. First Corinthians is first a message for Paul. It's second a message for the, the Corinthian church. Paul knows within himself his own ability to be profoundly impatient, profoundly uncomfortable, profoundly competitive, envious, jealous, divisive. He, Saul always lived somewhere. And so I said this before, I'll say it again. When Paul is talking about love, and he's not just talking about it in general, he's talking about the way that Jesus is loved. That Jesus is profoundly patient with Paul, kind to Paul, uh, tender to Paul, all of those things, Jesus is embodied in Paul. So we're speaking about a love that's very, very specific. And of course, we see all of this most specifically on the cross, because the cross is the ultimate example of proof that God's never ending love. It's there for you, it's there for me. It was there that love itself, Jesus Christ, actually came to an end. We can say that from an earthly perspective. Love came to an end. Why? So that you and I, we could be filled So that his love can really be poured into our hearts. That's the reality. It's the reality that the Christian faith has put before us. That's the reality of, of what we can experience here when we're together. And may that be true of this church. At the risk of sounding super insular, because this was really about you know, worship and how do we uh, cultivate our hearts to, to be able to worship in greater and greater ways. When we worship in this manner, it always calls us out. Always calls us out, out of our comfort zones, to love and serve others. We cannot forget that. You know, we don't have a storefront right now, but we are working towards it. We're not going to change our name. This is an accident. This is year three. Uh, but the pandemic was here. That storefront, we can have a storefront mindset until we have a storefront and allow the love of God to us get out of our comfort zones so that we can love others the way that he's done us. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is an accident on one level that we're here in this beautiful space. 
that this community has opened themselves to us, that we have a space on the high line. Uh, it couldn't, in some sense, be more uh, on point with our mission and our vision. And yet, uh, it's not an accident from your perspective. Not, you've kept us from a storefront space. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to follow you so that we can get out of our comfort zone, that we can be radically accessible to others, uh, so that we can love, we can know your love in greater ways, and just live life with other people so that they experience your love too. And that we're loved by God. Yeah, to that end, we pray this in Jesus' name.